I don't know about you, but I like a good movie. Uh, I can't say that Hollywood produces a lot of good movies, but uh, I get in these modes where I'm ready to check out of my world and vicariously enter into somebody else's world. And so nothing like a good movie for a couple of hours in a dark room to kind of help you escape uh, your own world. And sometimes I like a different genre movie. It just depends on it. I'm very moody when it comes to my movies. And, you know, I might like, uh, except sci-fi, I just can't stand those anytime. Uh, but if you uh, if you want comedy, there's certain comedies you can go to. Again, sometimes it's hard to find something decent that you can laugh out without feeling dirty after you laughed at it. So that, that that's kind of that's kind of tough. But you know, sometimes you go to a movie like Dumb and Dumber, and you feel like you're the dumbest because you paid for that movie. And so who's the dumber of the dumbest? I I, I don't know. But if I like a crime and drama, there's none, you can't beat a good Jason Bourne movie. I mean, just uh, Jason Bourne took the place of James Bond. I mean, the British had James Bond, but we have Jason Bourne. The bad thing is is that there's not any more Bourne movies coming out. At least it doesn't appear. So uh, I I don't know. But I like a good movie. Then there are those movies that you go to, and you almost can't leave your seat. You watch it, but as sure as you're watching it, it's peering into your own soul. I can remember seeing Schindler's List when we were living in Memphis, obviously a number of years ago, and I can remember when the movie was finished and sitting there in the in the theater and nobody moved. In fact, all you could hear just over the the, the closing credits and the music at the end was the sobbing of the people sitting in the theater. And even when the credits were finished, It was like nobody could move because you couldn't move because of the heaviness of that film being upon you. It was was one of those that, again, you kind of go back to again and again and again because of its its depth. What genre of movie is that? I don't know. I don't know what that is. But it creates a heaviness about you that it changes your life. And I can remember when Lori and I went to see Blindside. We felt like we were blindsided. We went to go to a movie. We didn't go to see something that would change our life and we would open up our home to complete strangers. But we found after watching that movie that there was this deep message that was in that movie that was transforming our life and our story at that very un- undertaking of that of, of that story. And then you got the passion of the Christ. I can remember going to see that. And I was very skeptical because I'd seen a lot of cheesy Christian movies and in, in my time. And I thought this might be another one, but Mel Gibson was tied to it. And there were, all the credits were so good and all the reviews were so good. And then I'm sitting there on my second tub of popcorn because I went back and got the free refill thing. And, and then the movie starts. <laughs> and I, to be honest with you, I couldn't eat anything else. Because it starts heavy, and it goes heavy, and it ends heavy. In fact, you walk out of the passion of the Christ, and you feel dirty in your own sin. But victory in Christ. It was such a dichotomy. It was such a, again, a movie that changed my life. Movies have been around only for, I guess, a century or so, since the 1900s. It hasn't been exactly a very long time that we've been putting stories up on the silver screen. How is it then that we have the stories that captivate us on the silver screen today? But years before, 
the big movie theater houses and all that kind of stuff. Years before that, how did we capture the soul? How did we engage in a story and it changed someone's life? And of course, you and I know that historically it was an oral culture and we told stories. We sat around the fire. We sat around the, the, the radio and we would listen to stories come in. Our, our grandparents would do that or our great-grandparents would tell about, about those, those experiences because it wasn't the visual. Or you'd pick up a good book. And you'd find your crime and drama in that book and a good author like that. We have a book that's absolutely amazing. The stories of this book, the drama and the crime and the murders and the suspense and the love and the lust and the promise and the dynasties and the, and the damsel in distress, we find that all in this book. It's a story that's, that's unfolding for years and years and years and Almost as you read the story and you read about mankind literally killing itself. And you, you hear the promise, that faint promise way back there in Genesis 12. And you hear that promise that one day all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. And you think, oh, is that, ever, is that day ever going to come? And you can just imagine the Jewish people because they were the ones that would be through their lineage that, that a Messiah would be born someday. On that perfect time in history that he would be born. And you, can you just imagine the suspense for years and years and hundreds and thousands of years waiting and waiting and waiting. And all along you see man just devouring itself like cannibals. If it weren't for that Savior entering into the picture, entering into the story, we would have been lost forever and ever lost. But it's the mystery that kind of is unfolding in the life of Christ that even as we're writing, even as we're reading through the book of Ephesians and and studying Ephesians, and you could be finding that book if you haven't already, you know, as, as you read through it, you realize that you're in the early, I mean, the very early days of these followers of Jesus. And they're still trying to figure it out. So the nation of Israel had taken it from, from being it, all the nations of the earth will be blessed through us, that all the nations of the world should see us as blessed. They kind of saw it as, hey, we're the blessed nation. Everybody ought to follow us. We're the ones that are blessed. In reality, it wasn't that God said that. He said that all the nations of the world would be blessed through you. It was almost as if they had taken their blessing, their promise from God, and they had closed off the end of it. Instead of being a conduit of blessing, they kind of saw themselves as the recipients of the blessing. That it kind of ended with them. They were the blessed people, they were the blessed ones, and it ended there. And it was this reality that Paul and Peter and the early disciples had to push against. And it's where we come today and we come to this story we, we, we read Paul kind of pushing against it and saying, hey, listen, I've been talking to you about a mystery. But we need to understand this mystery. This mystery is in there, it's, and, we, and we can't miss it. And in Ephesians chapter 3, it's like he just dives into it. But first, he kind of starts off in a prayer. If you read verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 3, you'll kind of find Paul kind of going into a prayer. And then you go to verse 2. And you see that Paul is ADD, all right, because he gets off track. He starts talking about something else. There goes a squirrel, you know, that kind of, that kind of experience. He starts to pray. He stops praying. He starts talking about his own life and his own calling. And then he comes back, and we'll look at this next uh, in the weeks ahead. He starts praying again. 
So he's right in the middle of this. You have this big parenthetical statement, but it's an important parenthetical statement that's made here. Because really that parenthetical statement that's made from verse 2 to verse 13 is really Paul giving his personal testimony. Nine different times he uses the first person pronoun, either I, me, or my, in these verses. So you can almost see as Paul as if he starts to pray and then he realizes, hey, no, no, I don't need to assume anything. Now, how many of y'all have ever heard the phrase from your boss, from your teacher, from your parents, assume nothing? Raise your hand. I can remember losing a client one time in a little business that I was in, and my boss told me, because I said, I assume that this and that was going to happen. And he pointed his finger at me, and he said, assume nothing. And I can remember the intensity in his voice saying, I need, need to learn that. That's a life lesson. Never assume anything. And so that's been one of my kind of mantras in my life. Assume nothing. Assume I know nothing. Well, that's what Paul has to do here. He stops his prayer, and he wants to establish who he is and what he's about. And I think if you look at the Apostle Paul and you look at this passage, you see it's a very pivotal passage. In fact, it was F.W. Beer who said it like this. He said, one of the most important passages, this passage, in the entire epistle, both in soaring flights of its thought and in corresponding uh, magnificence of its expression. It's a very important passage of Scripture, one that we can't look past or look over. As we look at this, we kind of have to enter into Paul's sandals. We're going to have to walk with Paul for a few miles today. Walk with Paul because that's the way Paul would pass on his faith. He would want you to walk with him. He would want you to learn from him. He would want you to emulate him. That was the kind of life that Paul lived out and how he transferred his faith. That's why he said in 1 Corinthians, he said, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That was Paul's idea of of creating disciple followers, is that you just stepped in line here, go with me as I go with Christ. And so today, if we can put on his sandals, and we can enter into Paul's life, and we can take a few steps in Paul's journey, and we can maybe begin to chart a new course for our own journey, to move from mystery to mission. Because that's what you see in Paul's life. He moves from mystery to mission. And in that, we can understand the value of the two whenever we look into Paul's life. So, follow along with me. Let's jump into this passage. But I want to give you three moves that a person makes when they move from mystery into mission. From God's mystery into our mission or man's mission uh, sent from God. Number one is we need to understand that we are keepers. We are keepers of God's story. We are the keepers of the story. Now, he uses the word mystery a lot of times. About four or five or six different times, I think six different times in the total in the book. In three verses, he uses it three times. It's kind of like the epicenter of the word mystery. It's kind of like the word that holds all the writing of Ephesians together is the word mystery. It's kind of like he said it in chapter 1. He's talking about it in chapter 3. He's going to talk about it later. It's mystery, 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 mystery. It's throughout the book of Ephesians. If we don't get mystery, we don't get the book of Ephesians. Mystery is that idea of of something veiled, something unseen. We, as followers of Christ, need to realize we are the keepers of God's story, of God's mystery. Now, it's not to be a mystery that we keep secret. It's a mystery that we unveil, just as Paul does in this passage of Scripture. In fact, look with me, follow along as I read verse 2. 
Verse 2 says this, assuming, again, Paul wasn't going to assume anything, that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Would you read that last, those last five words there on the screen? Given to me for you. Again, read it. Given to me for you. One more time. Given to me for you. If you read Paul's own personal biography, he makes it very clear what he is about. And it's not his own agenda. He even calls himself a steward. A steward of God's grace. That means he didn't own it. He couldn't keep it for himself. It wasn't just his fire assurance from hell. It wasn't just his assurance that he had a relationship with God. In fact, it even makes it very clear that it was given to me for you. It was this whole idea of passing it on. That we have God's story. We're keepers of God's story. Not so we can keep it and be warm and fuzzy and happy in eternity. We have been given God's story For them, for that person who hasn't heard yet. It's been given to me for you. It's been given to you for them. Who's the them in your life that you're holding on to God's story? Paul didn't call himself the the owner of God's grace, but he was just the steward of God's grace. 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1 says it like this. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. I think we could all agree with that part and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is a common phrase written throughout Paul's writing. The mysteries, the the two key words in this passage, in that verse, is stewards and mysteries. We are stewards of God's mystery. We're keepers, we're managers, we're not owners. My story of God inside my life, working in my life, working around my life, is not my story. It's God's story, but it's not my story to keep for that. It's my story to be passed on. It's been given to me for you. It's been given to you for them. Who in our life is the them that we need to be passing this story on to? This is a part of God's entire economy. There's an intense level of responsibility. Now, We need to not assume, as Paul doesn't, I don't need to assume that you and I both understand what the mystery is. Paul's been talking about it in 1 Corinthians. He's been talking about it in Galatians. He's been talking about it in Colossians and Ephesians and in Romans. He's been talking about throughout his writings the mystery. This has been something that's been hidden for ages. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, verse 25, it says, The revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages. So how, now we have him talking about, hey, it's been for a long time. Nobody's understood what the mystery is. It's been hidden. What is the mystery? All right, envelope, please. Let's look at verse 3 and following. How the mystery, and you can just underscore every time you see the word mystery, you can see the theme. It's just bubbling up. It's like he can't contain it any longer. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. 
We're narrowing it down. It's the mystery of Christ. What is the mystery of Christ? Verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. So there's been generation after generation that doesn't know what it is. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What is the mystery? Here it is, verse 6. This mystery is very clearly defined that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, fellow members of the same body, fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What he tells us is right there what the mystery is. You're thinking, Mike, whoop-tee-doo. Big deal. That's it? That's the mystery? That the, that the gospel, that the message of Jesus is, is for the Gentiles, that they're fellow heirs, fellow partakers, fellow members. What's that all about? Well, guess what? That's you and me. That's probably everybody in this room. Because you've got to remember, the Jewish community thought it was them. It was all about them. And it was, it, 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 the, the, the blessing of God was them. They were the blessing. That's how they saw themselves. But what Paul says here is he says, no, 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 no. The blessing of God is for all the world. If you were not a Jew, you were a Gentile. It wasn't that you were a Turk or, or that you were a German or you were an African or you were, you were any other people group out there today. It was just that you are not a Jew, so therefore you weren't blessed. But what Paul says is no. It's for all the peoples. It's for all the Gentiles. Nobody's left out. That's the beauty of the message of the mystery of Christ. That the gospel is for the entire world. Now, who is that out there? Depends on who you ask. And I don't know what it was in that day, how many people counts were there were in, in that day. We know there's 6 billion people on our planet today. So let's just talk about today. There are 11,642 different people groups that make up our world today. 11,642 different people that uh, constitute a language worldview a linguistic common ground, if you will. And it's that linguistic common ground and worldview that ties them together. And there's 11,642. There are more people groups than there are nations on the earth. For example, if you lived in Zambia where we lived for four years, you would find that there are 74 different people groups in that one nation. So instead of looking at it in geopolitical areas, we need to look at it in people groups. And there's 11,642. Now, wouldn't it be nice to know that 11,642, that there will be a representative standing before God's throne, beautifully worshiping God, bowing down for him. That's what the Bible promises. But here's another problem. We're the keepers of the message. We're the keepers of the mystery. If we don't get the mystery told to the people and unveiled to the people, then they won't know. There's a, there's a tremendous sense of responsibility placed on you and me. Because of those 11,642 people, 6,734 of them have less than 2% that are followers of Christ. And Mike, what's the big deal about 2%? Because missiologists have found that if there's at least 2% or greater people in there that are followers of Christ, they have a Bible, they have a church, they have a you know, Jesus film, they have some system of Christianity moving forward, that they can actually sustain themselves and reach the other 98%. 2% is not a whole lot, but if the missiologists will say that, but it, it's just, but it's, it boggles my mind to think that there's still 6,734 people groups out there that don't even have 2%. Believers. And what's even sadder than that is that there are 
3,800 people groups that are unreached and unengaged. To be unengaged means there's not a gospel witness, there's not a missionary, there's not a church, there's not a Jesus film, there's not a pastor. There's no gospel presence among that people. And has any sense of vibrancy or stability. And I hear that and I go, oh, this is just a bunch of numbers. It just blows me away. I, I can't even put my arms around my own neighborhood, let alone the world. I don't need to feel the responsibility for that. And I just go on about my life. And listen, folks, if you don't hear my heart today, then you don't know me. There is a tremendous amount of responsibility upon you and I today as keepers of God's story, to get that story to the world. Say, Mike, that's your heart, that's your passion, that's not my heart, it's not my passion. My passion's here, my passion's there. It's not that it's my heart, your heart, my, your their heart. It, it's God's heart. It's the part of the mystery that he gave it to Paul. It was, remember, it was given to me for you. It was given to you for them. It wasn't given just so you can have an escape out of hell. It's not given to you just so you could go to heaven when you die. It's not given to you just so you could pray and God would answer your prayers. It was given to you that you might give it to them. There's an urgency about this. The late Avery Willis was telling the story of a career missionary to Indonesia and a close personal friend until he passed away about a year ago. But he was telling the story of one time when he was actually the president of a seminary in Indonesia, the largest Muslim nation in the world, and about 85% of the people who live in Indonesia are, are Muslim, and as he was there teaching in the seminary, he took two or three students out with him into the street one day and just began to meet people, just make conversation with people to hopefully have an opportunity to share the faith with them. And so you run across three or four ladies in one situation, and so they all just stood there and began to talk, and he began to tell them the story of Jesus. These ladies were standing there listening to every bit that they were saying. And then they got to the point of Jesus dying and then Jesus being risen from the dead. They got to the point of Jesus actually coming back to life again. And these ladies' eyes got as big as a half-dollar bill because not, not, they had never heard of this before, which is really odd, even in an Islamic nation, because Jesus is considered one of the prophets so that many of them at least have heard of Jesus. But these ladies had never even heard of Jesus. These ladies turned to Avery and they said, when did this happen? Almost in disbelief, but yet believing. And they, they wanted to know, when did this happen? He said, oh, it happened 2,000 years ago. And you could almost see the transferring of their face. 2,000 years ago. Sir, excuse me, if that happened 2,000 years ago, why is it that I'm just now hearing about this? Why is it that my parents didn't hear about this. What's wrong with this? And Avery tells the story and he goes on and says, in embarrassment and shame and remorse, he says, I'm sorry that your parents didn't hear about it. I'm sorry that you didn't hear about it until now. I'll promise you this. It's not God's fault. It's not Jesus' fault. It's not the Spirit's fault. It's the church's fault. Because we have not heard and responded to the mystery challenge that we are the keepers of the message of God. And we are only stewards of it 
but it has been given to us. It's been given to me for you. It's been given to you for them. We must have a weight of burden upon us for that. We can't skip past Romans chapter 10, verse 14, because it says it quite clearly. Very, very good deductive reasoning here. How then will they call on him in whom they've not believed? And how are they to believe in him in whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without someone preaching? He says, Mike, that's your, that's your thing. That's your gig. Go do that. Preaching is actually the Greek word which means to carry a message. You're a preacher. I'm a preacher. We're a carrier of the message. We're a carrier of God's story. But it's very easy deductive reasoning there. How will they ever call? How will they ever believe? How will they ever hear? How will they ever, ever, unless somebody tells them? We're the keepers. That leads me to number two, that we are also the proclaimers of God's story. We're the proclaimers of God's story. I like Coca-Cola. I like the the taste of it, but I won't go there. I'm, I'm talking more about the story of Robert Woodruff, uh, president and CEO of, of Coke during 1923 to 1955. During World War II, he made this commitment to the troops. He said, we will see that every man in uniform gets a bottle of Coca-Cola for five cents what, wherever he is, whatever it costs. After that was achieved, he made an audacious, bold statement to the corporation. He says, I want everybody in the world to taste Coca-Cola. And I can't tell you that everybody in the world has tasted Coca-Cola, but I can tell you this. I have traveled over 20 countries. I have been in some of the, the most remote villages in Africa where they still live very primitive where they still draw their water out of a well, they still live as subsistence farmers in mud huts, or in, Mos- or in Kenya, they live in cow manure huts. And you can still find Coca-Cola in the villages of this world. I only wish that we had the same tenacity, the same commitment, the same zeal, the same fervency as Robert Woodruff would have for Coca-Cola that we would have for the gospel of Christ that we would have that same hunger about us, that we are the proclaimers of God's story. He could have given it to the angels, but he didn't. It would have been much prettier to give it to the angels, I'll promise you that. Probably more effective to have given it to the angels because they're pretty much on the spot, scare the fire out of people. They say, oh, do not be afraid, I'm not an angel. I mean, he kind of gets their attention. He could have printed it in a tattoo form on everybody's arm. That way a Muslim born in a Muslim culture or an animist born in an animistic culture would always have in their own language the words of Christ imprinted on their arm. So they all they had to do is look down and read. He could have done so many things, but he didn't. He chose you and he chose me to be the keepers of his message and the proclaimers of his message. Mike, what am I to proclaim? I'm not very good. I'm not a preacher. I'm not all these kinds of things. What am I to do? I like the way Paul, in his humble way, presents how we do this. I think, first of all, we need to understand and and share the unsearchable riches of Christ. There needs to be the unsearchable riches of Christ that we let known. We don't have to be eloquent. 
We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be polished. In fact, the more polished and eloquent we are, the more we make it difficult for the next person to share. Just be yourself full of Jesus. All right? Notice what he said in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made. It wasn't that Paul went out and chose it. He said, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which he had given to me by the working of his power. Notice that Paul didn't say I had any special gifting. It's just by God's grace. Listen, we're all saved by grace. Therefore, we've all received the same level of calling that Paul had on his life. Verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all these saints, I am not a rock star believer, okay? I'm just a simpleton. This grace was given to preach, again, the carrier of the message, to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of God. Translators have had a hard time with this. I want to give you a Bible study this week. Go through and read as many different translations and mark down as many different words as you could find that of this one word, unsearchable. There have been so many attempts because the Greek word is so powerful and so, um, so full that we don't have it, one English word that can contain its content. Translators have used the word inexplorable, untraceable, unfathomable, inexhaustible, limitable, uh, illimitable, inscrutable, uh, incalculable, infinite. You know what? The way you're going to share Jesus, to proclaim Jesus, is not because you have a formula or a plan memorized. It's because your life is going to be so full of Christ in His unmeasurable, His immeasurable grace, in His immeasurable goodness, in His immeasurable love, that you're just going to spill that out. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to have all the answers. Just learn to spill life from the overflow. I can study for hours, 15, 20 hours on one message to share with you in 35 to 40 minutes. Or I can let that message prepare me. And when that message prepares me and I stand before you, it just spills out. It just spills out. This is not a Bible study methods. This is allowing the Spirit of God to be so full in you, the immeasurable greatness of God just spills out of you. Can you just go into this world and just tell this world, just tell your friends, just tell your enemies, just tell the people you work with, you go to school with, just tell them about your life before you became a follower of Christ. Tell them about the time that you became a follower of Christ, the change that he made in your life. And tell them about the difference that he's making in your life. If you just do those three things right there, you will be sharing the immeasurable greatness of God's grace into their life. We proclaim the unsearchable riches of God through our lips. Would you open yours and begin to share them, please? Number two is the manifold wisdom of God is what we proclaim. We proclaim the wisdom, God's wisdom through His church. I told you last week that Paul is very high on the church. A lot of people are down on the church. Paul is very high on the church. We have individual roles that we play in this world, but we have a corporate role that we play in this world. And when you look at this passage of Scripture, you see that there's a corporate responsibility that we share. I love the superlatives that he used, the unsearchable riches of Christ, the manifold wisdom of God. But I want us to go down to verse 9, and I want us to 
follow along and, and, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery. There it is again, hidden for the ages in God who created all things so that through the church, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. I don't want to be a part of an institution. I don't want to pastor an institution. I want a pastor to be a part of a church that shows God off in a movement fashion. I, I we're, we're going to today and over in Rogers campus and we're, we're going to commission 30 new members into our church. We did some in the first service. We'll do some today. We'll do some in the third gathering. We're going to commission these new members to be a part of our family. But it's not just to join. But you're making a statement about yourself that you're becoming a part of a movement, not a machine. You're saying to everyone all around, you are declaring in and of yourself that you're no longer going to be a a consumer, but now you're going to be an investor. You're going to be an investor in something that is not just the community of Christ. It is literally the cause of Christ. That's what church membership is. Please get it out of our minds that it is just something that you join a social club to meet and greet. But we are part of showing God off the manifold wisdom of God. It is a commitment. It is a calling. It's not a convenience and a choice. can't tell I'm a little bit passionate about this. I think we have got to move from the mystery to mission. And if I don't understand in my life that I am the keeper of the message, and if the message isn't getting to the people, it's not God's fault, it's not Jesus' fault, it's not, it's my fault. I'm the keeper. I'm the proclaimer. I don't care how feebly it is done, how imperfectly it is done. It is my job and it is your job because it has been given to us for them. It has been given to me for you. It has been given to us for them. I want us to see the third move, and this is not an easy one to talk about whenever we go from God's mystery to God's mission, is that we are sufferers in God's story. We become sufferers in God's story, and I know that that doesn't draw you into some romantic fantasy, but I think I would be doing a disservice if you understood God's mission as anything of ease and convenience. In fact, Jesus said, he gave the warning on the front end. He said, listen, you buy into this, Luke 14, 33. He said, those who do not give up everything they have cannot be my disciples. Jesus was an all-in invitation. It wasn't a partial in. It wasn't a convenience track that you could take with God. We need to jot this verse down, put it in your notes. It will not appear on the screen. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, where it warns us that everyone who lives godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not an if. It's not a but. It's not a maybe. There is the calling that it will happen. And... 
we have so, I'm afraid, so sophisticated and domesticated the Christian faith that no longer is Scripture prophetic. Notice what Paul said in verse 1 of chapter 3. He says, For I am a prisoner in Christ Jesus on behalf of you, the Gentiles. Now remember, who is Paul? He is a Jew. Why would a Jew, the upper crust, be willing to be a prisoner for the lower crust of society, the Gentiles? And then why would Paul in verse 13 go, I am suffering for you, which is your glory. So literally, Paul was not even suffering for his own good and benefit. There was no luxury house on the other side that he was going to move into for his suffering. But literally, he was suffering for a different people group. He was even suffering to their glory. So Paul had no gain in the matter. Now, this is powerful. If you really drill down on this, because what we do in our culture today is so unbiblical. We choose the path of least resistance. We choose things for ease and convenience. Francis Chan, who wrote an amazing book, Crazy Love, hope many of you have read it. If not, we'll give it a copy. Come see me. We give it to all of our members when they join. We make sure they have it. You read it. You follow it. It's up to you at that point. We put it in your hands. Francis Chan is a person that I appreciate and admire from a distance. Never had a chance to meet him up close, but it's amazing to see how he has gone through, in, even in the midst of his success as a pastor, his success as an author. He is continuing to push himself to a more radical way of life. Even leaving his church that he was pastoring quite successfully and pursuing uncharted lands. He went over to uh, some very difficult world, uh, a difficult part of the world, and began to tour around in some countries. As you can see, these are the the world watch countries that are the most persecuted people are in those countries for their faith. And he went around to some of these countries and and was was visiting them and meeting with churches and houses, and churches in secrets, and churches by candlelight, because they don't have churches and. If in fact, if you have a church, the government will come and take you, take it away from you. If, if you proclaim yourself to be a Christian, you'll probably lose your job, and your family may leave you, and you may be divorced. Some people, there's stories that are endless. I was with somebody in Indonesia back a few months ago who was literally beaten by her family, told not to be a follower of Christ. I've blogged about it. It's a, the reality is that we don't live in that world. And I'm not saying I want to go out and seek out persecution. But Chan was sitting there talking to these guys, and they were telling them about their life, and and persecution was just woven into their story. It was just the way it was. Chan had something happen that he didn't anticipate. They turned the tables on him, and they said, tell us about church in America. Oh, okay, church in America. Well, we have church buildings, and we put church signs on our buildings. You mean people see your churches with church on it? Yes. And we have so many churches. We line them up on the same street, side by side by side. And you can drive down the street and choose your church, whichever one you want. You can go into one, and if you like the children's program, you can stay there. But if you don't like the children or the worship ministry, you can drop your kids off there, but you can end up over there at the other one. 
And you could go join this church, and then if they change their music, oh, that's God forbid. You just go and you change churches and find another church that sings the music the way you like the song. And they started laughing in his face. So no way. They don't, they don't do church like that. They don't do church like that in America. It was unheard of. What I'm trying to say to us today is we live in a bubble. But we have brothers and sisters around the world that are dying for their faith, that are being persecuted. I've just littered the stage today with 12 different countries of articles that I pulled from the Internet this week. Most of these stories are stories of 12 different countries and that happened over the past, many of them the past 12 months. And one story after another, some in full length, some in China, some in India, some in Turkey, some in Turkestan, some in, some in uh, Mauritania, some all, all over the world, some in the Maldives. Just all over the world, brothers and sisters of ours living in persecution, yet what we do is we live quietly and arrogantly in our comfortable little air-conditioned, climate-controlled church building. And I want us to wake up, my friend, that this is not reality. The reality of the Christian movement is that we must be about being a steward and not an owner of God's message. We must be proclaimers of His message. And if necessary, even going to these places where they're suffering. Here's my challenge. Band, go ahead and come back up. My challenge is this. My challenge is that maybe you'll take the next 30 days and just come and grab one of these sheets of paper and just pour your life into praying for these people. I'm not saying you need to go look for persecution. It'll find you. All right? It'll find you. But pray for our brothers and sisters. Be willing to be a part of being a keeper. Let's pray together. Father, awaken, awaken us now. Awaken us from our slumber. Awaken us from our apathy. Stir us, Lord, deeply. Disturb us, Lord, personally. We will no longer be containers of your blessing, but we'll be conduits be a part of sharing the immeasurable greatness of Christ. We'll be a part of showing you off as a church, Lord, to the world. Awaken us, Lord. Awaken us. Help us, Lord, to grab these papers. If that's, Lord, if we're willing to make a 30-day challenge, and take it on and pray and investigate and research and pour our lives into. Lord, help us awaken us, whatever that takes.